I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we have with us today Terry Reardon, bat researcher. Welcome, Terry. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Steve. <laughs> um, Everyone Steve. should do that now yeah. on the show. <laughs> so, um, so we're going to talk about bats, and mm-hmm. it's your lifelong passion. Um, so how do we eradicate bats? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you were joking when you said that was your lead question. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're already doing a really good job. It's interesting. Um, in Australia, for example, you know, we put a lot of research efforts into the, you know, the the bunch of threatened species that occur around Australia. But we and we know that they're threatened, and we know the processes that are threatening those species. But all the species that are generally thought to be least concern and and common, um, we know nothing about. You know, their populations could have crashed, you know, um, by fifty percent in the last twenty years, and we would not know. And sort of in answer to your question Joan and I went up to Central Australia and saw how the landscapes changed so much there and you know with the arrival of buffalo grass frequent fires big old trees that once held hollows for bats um, uh, have, have gone and will take another you know 300 years or something to return to produce hollows and the monoculture of, of you know these grasses this grass species you know probably has changed the insect abundance so um, I think we do a probably pretty good job just being humans doing what we do uh, it's probably reduced the bat bat numbers I think yeah obviously joking by the way um, but <laughs> um, didn't look like it, it didn't <laughs> but they have been vilified bats but we'll come back to that but it's interesting you mentioned the buffalo grass we had John Reed on the show and he talked about the buffalo grass causes such hot and the, the fire gets so high it takes out mm. tree hollows so it's mm. really changing the landscape mm. so are many many of our bat species hollow dependent yeah it's a good question because I think most people think of bats as being cave dwelling so about 25% of Australia's bats are cave dwellers um and the rest are tree hollow dwelling, although there's some odd bats that, uh, like the golden tip bat that likes to roost in uh, hanging nests from um, scrub wrens and whatever. And some species, like a com- very common bat around, will be flying around your place tonight, which is the chocolate wattle bat, seems to live in tree hollows here in, in this part of the world. But you go out to the Nullarbor Plain where the really big caves are, and you know they form really large colonies. You know, it's maybe thousand, two thousand bats. So they're a cave dweller out there. I guess Nullarbor, there's no trees and no hollows, but they seem to adapt to, to both uh, roosting sites. Mm. So they have been vilified bats, haven't they? That's it's it's a thing that people are, in a lot of a lot of countries they're scared of. They think that mm. they're going to cause disease, mm. um, and that's not untrue. But it's also Unlikely, is that fair to say? Uh, I, look, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? In China, they're symbols of good luck. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's whatever, nearly two billion people or something that can, don't vilify them. A lot of people, they're part of their culture, they're part of their food in, in, in various countries. They're not sort of vilified. Um, but, you know, of course, we have a history of vampire movies and Dracula and all that sort of stuff, which almost certainly taints, you know, our Western view of it all. So I think, and I think it's about being afraid, you know, like I think it's something we don't, you know, most people don't really see bats close up. Um, and that's one of the amazing things 
for me to show people bats close up and they almost universally change their opinion once they see them. Um, but um, I think just people are, are afraid because they don't know it's it's something and it's nighttime thing. So I think you know I don't know if they're sort of vilified, but I think it's you know in some cases like the flying foxes are. Uh, a huge issue along the east coast and all around Australia where flying foxes occur in large numbers is a, a, a conflict between humans and, and flying foxes so they're certainly vilified but I think the micro bats which you know and maybe we need to go back a bit about that bat world um, so um, they're about of you know of the about I don't know, five and a half thousand species of mammals in the world bats make up about 1400 species so bats are you know, around about 22% of all the species diversity of mammals in the world, and the same in a, and only rodents are a bigger group. So, uh, bat, uh, rodents make about a quarter of all the species diversity of mammals in the world. We th tend to think of Australia as the land of the marsupial, so we've got about 400 species of land mammals, and about half are marsupials, but a quarter, nearly a quarter, are bats, and nearly a quarter are rodents. So these bats, like the, the native rodents, um, are just as native as kangaroos and koalas. Um, but people don't know that, you know, and I was just talking to my sister, and I hope she won't mind me saying this. I, I, I mean, she's not a biologist, but she lives down in southern Tasmania, and she's passionate about all the animals that, that come in. You know, she has uh, native cats digging under her house and, you know, uh, wallabies and whatever. Um, and then she had a rat come in and she thought it might be, um, you know, she wasn't sure if it was a native rat or not. And we, we started talking about rats and and she was, you know, completely unaware that, you know, like, you know, the core of our native mammals were rodents, you know. We'd, and I think that's just most people. Most people don't know anything about really the diversity of anything really, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Steve, your passion and in... in uh, in, in snakes and whatever, you know, we most people don't have any knowledge at all. So when we talk to people, you know, we, we assume that they have very little knowledge. And I think that's that's the sad thing, I think. And what you guys do is presenting, you know, these animals to show people just engenders, you know, at least some knowledge and hopefully some passion. So, um, yeah, so I may have gone off at a tangent there somewhere. But so, that's what it's all about here. Yeah, not at all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so there's quite a diversity of bats in Australia. So, you know, a quarter of our native mammals are bats. and they're But most people would never know because, you, mm. you, I mean, I know you probably see them all the time because you work with them. And mm. if you go out on dusk and look up, you've got a very good chance of seeing one. But most people wouldn't know and you wouldn't know that they're out and about and doing all the things mm. they do. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the I don't know, I, I guess must be more than half of Australia's population live along the east coast and across northern Australia are very familiar with flying foxes. They're very visible. They're often diurnal, you see them. But, um, that, yeah, absolutely right. If you go out in just about everywhere in Australia on a warm summer's night and just after sundown, look out to the west and, and you'll see little bats, you know, shooting around. You, If you've got good hearing, um, some bats that come, their echolocation comes into the audible range and it sounds like two 20 cent pieces being ticked together and going tink, tink, tink. When I was growing up I always thought they were some sort of insect or something or other but you know it's it's quite a large bat you know like it's almost um, I don't know what a 40 centimetres wingspan and you know, you know 150 mil long 100 mil long body it's 
quite a large bat, but it's one of the most common bats in Australia, and it's, you, you hear it universally. Is that called the striped mastiff or something? Yeah, the white striped free-tail bat, which is, it's got, um, it's a free-tail bat, has a little tail that sticks out of the tail membrane, has long narrow wings, and it's got this beautiful chocolate velvet brown, um, dark brown body fur, it's fantastic, but you open up the wing and look on the junction of the wing and the body, it's got this beautiful white stripe, and you know, some individuals we've caught up in the Flinders Range also have this really nice white badge. It's almost like a, a footy jumper sort of thing. Beautiful, beautiful. It's a fantastic bat and big bat with massive teeth. Uh, and when we're catch, you know, doing research on bats, catching them, you know, you catch these things and they're just the most fantastic animals. Yeah, they're just really placid, you know, just to hold and whatever. Yeah, awesome. But, you, but you're right, you know, uh, we've got in Adelaide uh, maybe eight species flying around the Adelaide Hills and probably six relatively common in the uh, uh, city. And uh, we've had students in the past uh, doing work on looking at the bats in the city and we know that they're relatively common around parkland so people can see them. And of course <clears throat> they roost in um, a lot of buildings now so I, every year I get uh, calls from people saying I've got bats in my roof, how do I get rid of them? And maybe we can go into that, that process a bit later but... Um, I think it was in one of the pubs in town. Was it the Talbot or one of the? I can't remember the name of the pub, but there was white striped freetail bats roosting in the roof of the of the pub. And um, my colleague who was doing that research was sitting out in the beer garden, watching, holding a bat detector, and that was her research <laughs> research site sort of thing. Way to go, I think. <laughs> With the bat detectors, um, so that pick that that can read the ultrasonic sounds the bats make. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's how you can do a bat survey without having to physically touch a bat. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so um, flying foxes, uh, lots larger bats, and they've got some relative smaller bats called blossom bats uh, that occur up on the east coast and across northern Australia. Tiny little bats that, when you catch them, you put out a spoon with sugar in it, and their tongues come out about twice the length of their head and lap the sugar. So they don't echolocate. So they rely on their sense of smell and excellent night vision so most of the bats are insectivorous bats and they use the ones that use echolocation uh, and they use that echolocation to navigate through obstacles and find their insect prey they're mostly insect eating and uh, I'd like to talk some, about some research on on their diet in a minute but um, so um, yeah, so they call out this sound, but they also have eyes. So when you, that's, I think that's one of the things that surprise people when you show them a bat, an echolocating bat. They've got these little eyes like mice, and they blind, see quite blind well. Blind as a bat. Yeah, so blind as <laughs> bats, not true. And they've got excellent black and white vision, and we think that's for you know larger scale navigation. So often you'll see bats flying down roads or rivers and things. Um, so their call, uh, so it. Echolocation is an amazing subject and, um, and it's difficult to describe without seeing some pictures of what the, the calls look like, but if I can d describe it this way. So we were talking about the white striped freetail bat, which has a call which is at about 10 kilohertz. So humans generally can hear, say, up to 20 kilohertz. So 10 kilohertz is within our range, except like me, as you get older, your upper hearing goes. So I haven't been able to hear white striped bats for you know, 10 years or more. But young kids can hear that, hear them really easily. So that they fly around, they call out this call at uh, 10 kilohertz, 
And if you see the shape of the call, and I'll mimic it by whistling, it'll sound like, it would like, like, be like this. Relatively monotone, flat calls, and every second. And what that tells you is that they're putting all their energy in one frequency band. They're, they're waiting long distances between pulses to get the echoes back. And essentially they're finding insects. They're not very manoeuvrable in their flight. They've got long, narrow wings. And they're chasing insects and catch them on the wing um, uh, by intercepting them. And, uh, uh, and then you get, and I mentioned before, the chocolate water bat, which is a common bat around here, which has a, a, a call which the bottom of the, the loudest part of their frequency is around 50 kilohertz, so five mm. times, way above our human hearing. But if you could hear, see the shape of the call, it would call from about 70 kilohertz down to 50. So, and very fast rate. So, and you can tell about what the bat's doing and pretty much where it's foraging because of that. So bats with low pulse rates are flying above the tree canopy. Uh, these things with fast rates, obviously dodge, dodging um, vegetation and they're chasing insects that are moving all the time so they want the information back really quick so they're picking up really short space and there's a relationship between the frequency and the size of the insect that they're chasing so lower frequency is bigger wavelength so they're picking up bigger insects whereas you know really high frequency is picking up smaller insects so yeah so they're shouting out these sounds and even though they're above human hearing they're um, very loud sounds so they're you know, the order of 120 dB, you know, like in my day, my day, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin would be the loudest concerts around about 120 dB or something or other. So we, had, we had a dB meter when I did music and oh, really? I'd smash my snare drum and that was over 100 dB, just yeah. one snare drum, let alone a whole band. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, these bats are calling, you know, these tiny little things, you know, so now I'm talking um, little chocolate waddle bats, you know, their body size not much bigger than a mouse and a wingspan maybe... I don't know, 200 millimetres or something or other, six inches or something. Um, so these tiny little animals are just shouting out this enormous amount of sound. <laughs> now, if you shout this sound out, you, and if I... T- you can't hear much else that's going on if you're shouting mm. out this loud sound. So they decoupled their bone from their eardrum so they, they can shout and not get that noise travelling through their head. And, of course, then they've got to wait for an echo. And now they've got to shout out loud sound because you know that sound dissipates to the square of the distance. So it gets, like, as you double the distance, it halves, and then by the square of that, so twice the distance is four times less sound. So it radiates like that. By the time it picks up an insect, little, and then the insect echo comes back to the bat, you know, there's very faint sound. So that's why it has to be really loud. But the thing is that sound, the higher frequency you go, it dissipates in the air really quickly. So that means that um, highest pitch sound gets what's called attenuated, just dissolves much more quickly in the air, whereas low sound travels much further. So when we have, so we have these, you know, in the last, when I started out, um, we didn't have back detectors, but the technology's gone amazing and become amazing in the last um, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, where you've got these handheld detectors or things that you stick on front of your your uh, phone or your um, iPad or whatever, and fantastic microphones that uh, then show on your screen the shape of the call and you can record the call and do analysis. So we can actually walk around with a bat detector and see what bats are flying around. You guys should have a bat detector here and 
we need to know what's happening on this property. Yeah, that's great. That'd be great. And they're probably drinking over your little little dam there as well at night. So now you have detectors that you can just leave out for you know a month or something or other, and it just records the calls in small chunks onto an SD card, and then you come back and then you go through the calls and identify them all, and you can see what's going on. And there's been a lot of work done now trying to automate this this process. So. Uh, in the old days, you know, you, you'd record, you know, a couple hundred thousand calls. You'd have to go through every file and look at it and, and identify it. It's really slow. And increasingly, there's been better algorithms and ways of doing things. And But thus far, we, the ultimate automated back call and analyzer hasn't been developed yet. But I've been talking to people recently, and they're using <coughs> convoluted uh, convoluted neural network t- um, algorithms to actually develop automated keys for bats now. So I'm really hopeful that soon we'll have, you know, be able to identify most bat species. And the, the reason, and just to go back, just one step there is that I talked about two extremes: the white striped bat down at 10 kilohertz and the um, chocolate wattle bat at 50 kilohertz. There's a lot of common bats around here. Little forest bats are really tiny. But they call, you know, roughly in this, they're about the same size. They call, you know, around between 40 and 45 kilohertz. And the shape of their calls are pretty much the same. And through Doppler, you can get shifts of um, um, a couple of kilohertz. So they're very difficult to tell apart. So you, get, you might have these three species flying around here, and it's really hard to tell them apart. Um, so that, that's one of the big challenges for uh, call analysis. But it's changed the way we survey for bats. It's, it's an amazing technology. Has all this new technology um, allowed you to recognise new species? And, and yeah, I would imagine, like, if we can't mm. hear them. Then mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I guess historically the way all this worked, you know, in fact, we did some work up in Cape York um, uh, in 2009. We were asked, because I think, um, I think, at least half the microbat species up there were on the threatened species lift or something rather right? than so we had a job to go and sort of work out you know what you know what is this what do we think the status of all these bats are so we went we went up to the top of the Cape York from Cairns and worked our way back down did a different went for 30 days and did 30 different sites put out stacks of bat detectors caught lots and lots of bats and um, developed a um, you know worked out what's there um, and so we, we had a pretty good idea of, of the species diversity. And there's, there's a couple of bats called uh, horseshoe bats that have these amazing faces. You know, they've got this, instead of shouting out their sound, they hum it through these leaves on their, these uh, like skin leaves on their face in the shape of a horseshoe. And they've got these little fleshy protuberances and really unique looking bat. And there's a couple of, three species on Cape York. And they've got constant frequency calls. So they're, instead of doing or they got very flat calls and we can identify the species really easily but recently some people um, uh, in just north, I think around Mission Beach on the on Queensland picked up this flat call which was not the same frequency of any others and so they've gone back there and we think this is a new species so, so exactly you know what you're suggesting is that there's the possibility you know once we get to know an area so how, how do we know what species i guess this is a, leads on to how do we know what species has what call sort of thing so that's what we spend a lot of time in so we go out and catch bats and we do that using very fine mist nets 
Um, and um, can you remind me to come back to Kate York and shotguns? Uh, <laughs> um, wow. Because <laughs> um, I think where I was going to go there, um, it's going to go about the history of how we how we know what bats are. But I'll just finish off this about echolocation calls. So normally go out with mist nets and and string them up over waterways or in gaps in the bush. And we have these things called heart traps, which are um, square aluminium frames about two metres by two metres that have these uh, nylon strings that an inch apart vertically strung and two or three or four banks of those and when the bats fly and you put them up on the stand and then when the bats fly into those strings they fall down and they go into a bag and so it's a very good way to catch bats and many species like spider catching bats and a whole lot of other uh, bats which we don't catch in mist nets we catch in these harp traps so we go out and we catch all of these bats and then we identify them and then we get a little uh, you know those siloom sticks little fishing for silent sticks, you know, you break them and they glow in the dark. Mm. So you get these tiny little ones, and then you get a bit of sticky tape, and you cut about an inch of that, fold in half, and then put the the silent stick on the bat's belly and squeeze it between a few strands of belly fur. So we know what the species is because we've identified. And then we let it go, and we all run around with our bat detectors and follow it through mm. the forest and record its call. So we do that over and over and again, and build up a reference library of calls. Um, so we know what each species is and then we put put those reference calls into the whatever algorithm we're trying to develop to automatically identify them and then hopefully we can identify the unknowns sort of thing so that's how that works but I'll go back to just Kate York just because um, yeah it's, it's interesting I, when we did this study in 2009 I looked at the old records um, up there and there was all these bats caught that hadn't been caught for a long time and I realised back in the day, people had used shotguns to collect bats. So these bats, like the Papuan sheathtail bat, which is relatively, was thought to be relatively rare, and it's quite a large bat, it's as big as the white striped freetail bat. And um, all the records for this, you know, and this is a clearly obvious thing. If you had a spotlight, you'd see it, and you can easily shoot them. So a lot of record, a lot of the early records were done with shotguns and and bird nets, which are really thick. So the very small micro bats don't get caught you know, in the mist nets. And then, you know, that sort of phased out. And then with the invention of um, harp traps, it just completely changed our view, our knowledge of what bats were. All of a sudden we're catching all these different suites of bats. And then the combination of that and bat detectors and all that sort of changed. So the history of, you know, the Cape York bats, you know, it looks like some species were present and um, and then went extinct or got rare and all these other species. But it's just simply a, a function of the evolution of the way people did, did bat work. So <laughs> Shooting bats to find them. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, when you, you've got megabats and microbats, mm -hmm. but uh, there are some pretty big microbats and some pretty small megabats. Is that true? Yeah, worldwide. So it's an interesting conundrum because... Um, uh, when, you know, when bat people talk about megabats and microbats, we fully understand what it means. And I got hammered in a recent paper for using those terms because in the old days, it was thought that megabats, which is really a family called ter Terapodidae, which has the big flying foxes and a bunch of little uh, blossom bats, and that was a separate evolutionary line to all, all the echolocating bats. And Genetic work done, um, oh, I guess it must be 15 years ago now, but repeated since have shown that 
the micro bats, the echolocating bats are in two groups now and the um, um, mega bats are in one of those groups. And I just saw recently a, a phylogenetic tree that suggested that the ancestors of, of bats, which you know probably 55 million years old, so the old fossils from Wyoming and from southeast Queensland and India, which were found around about 52 million years ago, seem to have the apparatus for echolocation. So bats probably evolved, you know, sometime 55, 60 million years. I'm not sure, but it seems like the oldest bats have echolocation and then these branch two branches happen and then maybe uh, the the megabats lost echolocation so when we talk about so now the purists don't like to talk about megabats and microbats because this group now is called yintero corruptor and this is the yango corruptor of this this group this group so we, but everyone knows what we do when we're talking about mega and microbats essentially but you're quite right megabats have quite small blossom bats um is a tube nose bat a blossom bat, bat is, yeah. A, is, yeah we well, have one of those ex- outside mm. of our rooms in borneo yeah. oh fab- yeah. fabulous aren't they yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. i thought that was a fruit bat well, it's, well it, it is, is. A, it is oh, a fruit, it is a yeah. fruit bat sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah the mega mm. it's, a mega it's in the bat. it's in the mega bat <laughs> and the biggest in fact the biggest um micro bat um well, there's two. There's one Australia's ghost bat, but there's another one in Borneo called the naked free-tailed bat, which is this huge thing, just no fur whatsoever. Of course, it occurs in Borneo. But Australia's got the most fantastic um, ghost bats. Undoubtedly, you've seen them in zoos. And in zoos yeah. always have the ghost bats, don't they? Yeah. Mm. Gorge have them with their buildings. Mm. I don't know if they still do. So the, the big um, fruit bats don't have echolocation? No. Mm. Mm. Even the little fruit bats don't have echolocation. Even the little what about ones, the medium ones? <laughs> they do. No. <laughs> and again, it's not strictly true because there's things called bear bats, fruit bats. So we've got uh, one species in Australia and there's several species through New Guinea that live in caves and they've got this um, a click, which is an echolocation, but it's not echolocation, it's just a click. And it's like the, I don't know if you've seen those, um, what do you call those, cave swiftlets up in Chiligo and places like yeah. Yeah, a lot of places you know they have this little audible clear clip. in Borneo yeah. too yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yep mm. there's some rodents that do a bit of echolocating yeah I think yeah I, I, that's right I think does the bandicoots also have a high pitch slightly really? high pitch sound I'm not sure oh, know that. don't yeah. quote me on that one it's too no, late it's too late did somebody tell me hips are primnidon oh okay the musky rat kangaroo yeah, made, that's interesting yeah um, there are people that go blind and they can do clicks out the Click. window and, the, and they they can see the buildings and things, can't they? They start to they go... Does the echolocation, does that go to the optical part of a bat's brain or do we have any idea? Or? I guess it goes to the audible, so, the audible side because okay. they do or have eyes and they have vision anyway, which is processed. Yeah, okay. Is that, so, not, sorry, is that a comic thing that you've just said there that what? people can put their head to a blind can put their heads out the window click no that's true and see a building that's true is it no yeah. I, I think he's pulling I think he's reading thing. something there yeah. isn't he? yeah, there was a <laughs> no an actual yep yeah jane saw it yeah, yeah it must be true must be true yeah uh, actually when, when uh, did you see it when you were clicking yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> there's, there's a bicycle and clicks there's a guy there's a guy who travels the world lecturing on this he's blind and he 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 does these clicks 
and he can tell you the shape of stairs and buildings and stuff like that. It's it's just amazing. That's insane! Wow. And we had it's a crazy. The museum yeah. had a great program. We we went down and um, took did a program on bats for the South Australian School for Vision Impaired Kids, and we took them to the Flying Fox Colony, and we went out at night and had bat detectors and what whatever. But he'd been, I think he'd been to that school, you know, and that they're all cute queued into this guy because there's various people that do this at various levels but this guy just happens to have it perfected it you know to actually see the shape and he rides as Joan's saying ride bikes and whatever and you can it's if you want to look it up YouTube they're locating people or something you know, that's, yeah, it's well, amazing it's pretty weird isn't it um, so bats do a lot of really good stuff I mean what comes to mind is do you drink tequila do you like tequila Terry uh, tequila what yeah. tequila <laughs> Occasionally. Because <laughs> um, I'm told that we wouldn't have tequila if it wasn't for bats. Mm. So, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of bats, particularly in, in the Americas that have... What's the matter with you today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested now. I like tequila. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so there's a whole bunch of bats that um, are in... Uh, are, are echolocating bats in the uh, Amer- South, Southern Americas... Mm. Um, Central America and South America that uh, yeah, pollinate cactus and a whole lot of things. So they're not using echolocations in the same way as chasing insects, but they're nocturnal and they're attracted to the um, you know night flowers. And they're just yeah, just an amazing coevolution that you know you've seen all those you know pictures of the way insects and flowers coevolve to, to look like one another and um, and. Oh, and my favourite. Oh, yeah. So there's a whole. So you're right. So there's a whole bunch of uh, bats that pollinate flowers um, that are in the insectivorous group that are different than the blossom bats, which also pollinate uh, flowers. And the, yeah, it's fantastic photographs of our pollinating bats. You know, um, you know, putting their head in a in, inside a plant, licking out the nectar at the base of the thing and the stem, and sort of hitting and filling up their head full of. <laughs> pollen and they fly onto the next one and pollinate it. There's things like bananas, um, the agave where we make tequila, and is there anything like Australian, uniquely Australian? Like boab trees. Boab apparently. trees, yeah. yeah. So our little uh, northern blossom bats are pollinate, yeah, pollen, boab trees. And I don't, yeah, I, don't, I really don't know a lot about the, the diet and what um, I've seen in New Guinea, like, uh, what are they called? Syzygium? Is that lily pillies? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, they're on those those trees. Yeah. Does that mean those guys flower at night time? But yeah, well, yeah. they open at night. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, so the insect eating bats, they save us billions of dollars, don't they? Yeah. So, well, there was a, you know the classic study that we all quote, and I, I never get, I never quite remember because it was a range, I think. But in America, that they they thought that um, the Insectivorous bats in the U.S. contributed something like three billion dollars to the agroforestry economy. Um, so, you know, when you think about it, like all these, you know, at night, millions of these bats are flying around at night, eating all these insects. So they're really important for insect um, regulation. So that's important for they're eating things like mosquitoes and whatever. So that's important controlling insects that may, you know, cause human and animal disease um, and also uh, eating so we have had a student um, 
recently from Adelaide University, Joanne Coon, who did a study down at the Bat Cave at Narracourt. Um, and what, what we did was we put all these plastic sheets in the cave, in a couple of caves, for overnight. And when the bats, you know, this bat colony has 30,000 bats in it, so they came in, they do droppings on the sheets. And she went in and carefully picked up all the individual fresh droppings. And, and some other colleagues in Victoria got some, you know, cave floor droppings and whatever. And she did, used environmental DNA to look at the diet of these bats because we don't really know. And that's one thing we don't know about most of our bats in Australia is what their diet is. Mm. So we know that they're in, in, insect eating, but we don't know what key insects are, are important. And if we want to look after them, and particularly the bentwing bat down at Narracourt, which is a critically endangered species, we need to know what its diet is so we can provide, you know, the habitat that provides that food item. So when she did her uh, environmental DNA analysis on the dropping, she found that they, she discovered there were 67 species of moths in the diet, mm. and which is quite a diversity for one night, you know, in, this, in southern Australia. And I think it was 13 of those were uh, known as crop pests, so these bats are out there, you know, cleaning up all these important crop pests. And so things like, um, we do know that the chocolate wattle bat that's common around here is a moth specialist. So, you know, we don't know what the contribution to our, you know, like our apple growing orchard is, you know, when they're eating, um, you know, light brown apple moth and codlin moth and whatever. But, you know, they're important, you know, from that that point of view. So they, they people always ask, you know, you know, oh, why are bats important to us? Well... They are, in a sense, you know, they should be important because they are. They just exist, but you know, they do have a role, you know, in our health and our food production and whatever. And they're doing it this big bi- biological service with diminished numbers too, because mm. their numbers are like a lot of. Sorry about that. Um, they <laughs> would have once been a lot more. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, do you guys know James Smith? Do yes. James very Smith, well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had dinner with him um, late last year and he's building a new house and he's putting a section of his roof. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah, I've been involved with it. Have from, you? From oh, the right, there yeah. you go. Yeah. It's four yeah. bats, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. People are kind of ringing you saying, how do I get the bats out of my roof? He's trying to build his roof to facilitate so bats. bats <laughs> so I think in, in most cases, you know, I get calls and people are, uh, you know, you talk to them and they, it, a, a lot of, you know, I'd say most of the people... Uh, are happy to leave the bats there once you talk to them and you know because they're a bit worried about diseases you know this is a common and I should have mentioned when you asked me about vilification I think it's the the disease side of it's another aspect why people are a bit frightened of bats but and vampires too to be fair and vampires yeah, yeah it's the other one Dracula yeah but um yeah lost track then sorry <laughs> yeah so you're talking about James Smith's um, it's bat roof. Bat okay. roof, yeah. So most people are happy to leave them there once they know, you know, that they're, you know, it's not going to affect them or whatever. Um, or you know, there's pretty simple solutions like, you know, putting a shade cloth above your BMW or something like so they don't poo on their <laughs> on your car. But you know, in some cases, you know, they've got legit reasons to get get rid of them. You know, like they're redoing the roof or whatever. So you know, there's strategies for and, you know, James, I think, is on top of this as well about. The way you can, you know, uh, it, generally what you do with, with houses, for example, is, um, you know, work out where the bats are flying in and out. And then in, in uh, February, March, when the weather's still warm and the young are born and have left 
uh, you know, uh, uh, independently flying, then you gradually sort of block up all the holes until that point, and then you can put a little rubber flap or just block it up on a really warm night when they've all gone out, and mm. it seems to work. But, bit like uh, possums. One-way door. Yeah, yeah that's it. Mm. With the uh, with the insect bat, something that we have spoken about a few times on, on podcasts, um, you're driving around at night nowadays, like even in Northern Territory, and you don't get many insects. It used to be impossible to keep your windscreen clean mm. and things like that. Like nowadays, there's just not as many insects around. Is that affecting mm. bats? Is that a so? There's problem? been yeah, there's been a fair, a bit in the literature in the last you know four or five years about the diminishing number of insect numbers and diversity in in Europe and I think in America. I'm not so I haven't seen that much here. I, I haven't been aware of it. But, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I think about, you know, when I was a kid and you turn your front porch light on and there was moths everywhere on the thing. Mm. Now, I don't really know whether, you know, that's my memory of a night when it was, you know, a warm night and it was about to rain. And, and we're going to remember those nights. Yeah, we're going to remember yeah. those nights. Mm. So it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a that memory. And But I noticed, you know, we have live in the hills and there don't seem to be that many moths coming to the... You know, to the the glass door when the house lights are on, that, that sort of thing. And, and people often talk about, you know, the... And I don't know if that's because cars have got slopey back windows now and they don't hit the the, the windscreen as often or, or not. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's a general consensus that there's... That's yeah, I think even when you're driving along with your headlights on, mm. you just don't see all the yeah. insects that you mm. or that I remember mm. um, when I was a kid. Yeah, and it's, you know, you think about our country, it's a huge change to all the vegetation and, you know, often places, you know, you know vineyards from, you know, we've got a, we've had some looking at, you know, we've been involved with a, a wildlife for wine recently and looking at how bats, we might be able to get uh, vineyards, people to put more bat boxes up to attract uh, insects to control vineyard pests. But Alyssa Sparrow was talking to me about that. Yeah, so she you know, kind of got me in, roped in on for the bat side of that, yeah. But, um, you know, but you know, you look at areas, you know, there's just, you know, vineyards from horizon to horizon or there's agroforestry from horizon to horizon and then, you know, the change in landscapes in the outback through grazing and clearance and whatever. I, and then, you know, they had, and in the 70s in the US there was a study done where they looked at um, the imp- impact of DDT and I think there was a cave there that had something like 20 billion bats, 20 million bats in it and the introduction of DDT that population dropped to about 200,000 or something yeah. like that and then when DDT was finally phased out these bat populations increased and it was because the organochlorines sort of built up you know, in their fat and these are migratory species so when they started migrating again they were mobilising all the fat and then they would would die so I think it's a combination of a whole lot of you know change in you know like pesticides we found pesticides for example down in Bat Cave at Narracourt um, in the faeces yeah and yeah, we, we right. actually looked at you know in the blood as well and um, and we found you know like traces of um, DDT metabolites well it's probably ubiquitous you know if we looked in human mother's milk now we'd probably still find DDT metabolites still lingering they're very you know long lived uh, things but Coming through the soil still today. Yeah. Yeah, right, wow. And going, you know, into the plants and then the insects. And then we found a thing called methamidophos, which was none of us had heard of, and we looked up, and it was a mitocide for, in, used in potato crops. This was in, in Bat Cave at Narracourt. And, 
thought, oh, well, that's weird. There's no potatoes down here. But out of my ignorance, there were huge pivot, you know, growth areas of potatoes. So somehow, you know, it's got up through the, the chain and into the bats. Now, I don't know whether that affected the bats or, or not, but it, it was a detected in our assay. But we do know that things like organochlorines and organophosphates and those sorts of things that were commonly used in DDT, you know, a lot in the other hills, say Piccadilly and whatever, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago or so, you know, would have been around and probably would have killed a lot of bats, I imagine. Now, you've had a walk around my property here. It's just three acres of remnant stringy bark woodland. Do you reckon there's bats living here? There's a lot of tree hollows. Do you think there's any any bats? Yeah, if there's tree hollows, there's a good chance um, that there will be bats living there. I don't, yeah, it's always hard to know. Um, but they all, they all have bats flying over here. So, you know, if you were to put out a bat detector at night, you'd hear bats flying over, and you know, I'd be surprised here if you didn't pick up, you know, at least seven species. And and as I said, I'll bet they, they will come and drink out of your little pond there on really hot nights. So. I do hear the one you mentioned, the, the striped free white, tail. The white striped white free, free tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 220 cent piece. I do hear that one. And we see fruit bats on dust too. They're, they're massive. They've got like a one metre wingspan. They yeah. fly over like something cruising out of mortar. They're mm. ridiculous. Um, have, you're obviously aware of this, the golden crown flying fox. It's the um, one in the Philippines. It's the biggest of the fruit bats. Well, biggest oh, wingspan. No, I don't, don't know that common name. But, yeah, oh, there's a bat called Vamp. Yeah. It's, it's a 1.7 metre wingspan. Yeah, point, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you've seen how big the ones here are. The biggest in Australia, wingspan wise, is a metre, and that just looks ridiculous. Mm. This thing's like mm. 1.7. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, flying foxes are amazing. I think, you know, like you, again, you see them, they're most fantastic faces, and, you know, people have them, you know, look after them, and they're very interactive and curious. And I often tell a story. I was in a place in New Guinea, um, and we went to this cave in the jungle, and it was like, I don't know, maybe the size of three tennis courts or something like this. This hole just dropped, you know, like nearly 100 feet, 30 metres, sheer sides. And on the walls were, um, I don't know, 150,000, something, these bareback flying foxes just roosting on the sides of the walls. And I remember abseiling into this cave to see if it had tunnels going off. And you get to the bottom, and, of course, you sink this far in, in bat guano and shit and whatever <laughs> and then of course the bats take off and it was raining urine all over me and I thought that was the best place I'd ever been in my life <laughs> bat world mm. wow. do, yeah. do we worry about the fact um, that bats have all of a sudden kind of arrived in Adelaide as well in, seems to be one place outside the, the, the zoo mm. it's not, it doesn't seem the best place for them in red hot Adelaide at certain times of year and things yeah, it's it's such a vexed issue, you know. Like on one hand, you know, this is a, a, a nationally threatened species, so, and we've known for a long time that that species, the grey-headed flying fox, has moved further and further south. Um, so it's normally distributed from around Rockhampton um, down to Sydney or so, and it's moved. I think in the 1980s it got to Melbourne, and then built up colonies much the size we have, even bigger than we have here at the moment. And eventually they came here in 2010. Like there was one found in the Botanic Gardens, and then a woman in Fullerton had uh, she rang up me at the rang me at the museum, said, "Oh, I've got all these 
you know, 500, 500 flying foxes in my pencil pine. This is in <laughs> Fullerton. Uh, yeah, well, uh, and she was insistent, you know, and I thought there were much microbats in, in a hollow or something. Else. So I went around there and got there a bit early and it was this beautiful pencil pine, pristine, no noise or anything. So we sat around her and drank a bit of wine and then just got dark and all of a sudden 500 flight foxes flew out of the <laughs> pencil pine. And then I think Chris Daniels and a whole bunch of, and ABC, we all went down there next morning and banged tins and shooed them out of her property and then did that for a couple of nights and they disappeared. And it turned out that that was a, a, a major food shortage. So in that year, uh, there, were, there was just hardly any nectar around for those flying foxes in their normal area. And so they were flying to a really weird place as they turned up in Tasma- southern Tasmania for the first time. There's, you know, um, wow. emaciated ones on oil rigs on Bass Strait sort of thing. And then they, they made it to Adelaide. And I think what happens is you kind of get this, uh, you know, I don't know how, they, how those animals communicate, but they seem to have some sort of corporate knowledge. So, you know, so those ones that we shoot out in 2010... Most went back because it just coincided with the end of the food shortage. So they probably all went back to Melbourne and back up to northern uh, New South Wales, south, southeast Queensland. But then the following years, um, you know, they, the following year there was a small colony about 30 in the Botanic Gardens. And then because Sydney and Melbourne had spent millions of dollars trying to get rid of theirs from their, you know, having 20 and 50,000 bats or something ruining their trees. You know, it made sense in Adelaide before these bats got habituated to get them out. And so the Department of Environment did a really good job banging lids and moving them gradually out over a month. You know, they'd bash tins and they'd fly to another tree and then they'd fly back in the afternoon and they'd do that next morning at six o'clock and eventually they'd stay there and then they'd do that again, they'd go to that tree and then eventually got to where they are now. And then the population, you know, at that stage was around 400 and I understand it's around about 30,000 now. Yeah, it's very vexed, you know. In, in many ways, they're in, a, in as good a place as they're going to be because there's been a lot of, over the years, calls for culling and calls for moving them. But, you know, every time this dispersals happen, it just puts the problem somewhere else and you don't know where that is. You know, you know I think in, in Melbourne, they spent a lot of money trying to get them out of Melbourne Botanic Gardens and they built this... Uh, well, they identified a site on the Yarra and they built these big aviaries and put bats in there to attract all the other bats and eventually shooed them out of botanic gardens but they went somewhere else at Yarra Bend rather than Horseshoe Bend. So you know you you can't send them where you want them to go and we tried finding sites in Adelaide where we thought that might be palatable to have these colonies but so yeah and there's a lot of uh, stakeholders involved with all this because there's been power outages, there's been you know the fruit growers are, are are concerned and I think there's been a couple of plane strikes and whatever and well, the planes have crashed into the bats yeah so that this I guess it's not you know not that happens a lot you know I think in northern Australia and micro bats hit them all the time and birds but um, and as far as I know that's the only three I think they were at it might have been two of them out at Parafield but um, I can't remember the detail but so a lot of people kind of worried. There's a lot of stakeholders involved with this colony. Um, uh, botanic gardens are rightly worried about the impact on their, their gardens and whatever. They're in a place now which is in a really good spot in a way because, you know, the, the trees there aren't, you know, aren't their most valuable 
the trees, but definitely the footprint's increasing and they're having an impact on the trees that they're in. And and I think what happens is that, the you know, and I think it's partly because there's less food available and maybe the fires may have had a big impact because some of the fires burned out some of the, you know, the big areas of of eucalypts. So they're mainly feeding on eucalypt blossoms. Their preferred diet's eucalypt blossoms, but they will feed on other fruits, native fruits, and then if it, things get desperate, they'll feed on, you know, cultivated fruits. I get them in, I've got a big introduced banks here, just next to my house, yeah. and they come and um, get the nectar from the banks here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they're primarily nectivorous, but... Um, and then there's black flying foxes, which are really numerous and occur right across southern Australia, and their numbers are coming further and further down. Oh. So one thing we're thinking about, they might be competing for resources. Um, it's a big, complicated story, but the most reliable, it seems, winter resources in northern Queensland and southeast, sorry, northern New South Wales, northeastern New South Wales and southeastern Queensland. And so essentially they come down south in summer and go back to these places, but now because of all of our street plantings and you know, backyard gardens and fruit, you know, they're staying south, you know, and they've got to Adelaide and think, wow, this is a bonanza here, you know, so they're not going back, you know. And so the only real control here is, you know, those heat wave events when it gets above 42, 43 degrees. And mm. depending on when that happens, if it happens in early January, it can wipe out the entire reproductive output, all the young die. If mm. it happens later, then it's less young die, but some more adults seem to to be affected by it. Wayne and Katrina end up with hundreds of them and yeah. rehabilitating mm-hmm. them, don't they? Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge and it's a shocking thing to go there. It, you know, you, it's just the smell of all these dead bats and they're lying around on streets and whatever, so the whole lot of us go in there and you know take bags and pull up all these dead bats. You know, it's a pretty shocking thing, but these volunteers are, you know, you know you've been talking today about the wonderful volunteers you have here on this property and... I think of all those fauna carers and other people that come in and volunteer and do that really distressing job so other people don't have to actually contend with it. You know, and the city council's been amazing and the botanic gardens have been really helpful. Well, that's amazing. That was only 2010. That's when I moved to Australia. I thought they'd been there for a lot longer than that, so it's very recent. Yeah, so that's when they've arrived. So there's been odd records. So the first record I'm aware of was 1998 down and there was... Uh, about 10 of them in an apple tree down at Mount Gambier so I went down to see those and um, then there's been single records in Adelaide a couple of electrocutions and uh, a a ranger saw one out at the Gowna wetlands um, but only those odd odd records and then yeah and then 2010 the food shortage was what Brought wow. a bunch here. So. There's been talk I could of add something about that. There was a 10-year drought, which ended in 2010, and, but there was a big bushfire in the Dandenongs in Victoria, which might have caused them to move westward. We've over at that point. Food. There was no food, food shortage. Mm. Um, Terry's partner, Jane, in the background. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, Sorry, no, go for I it, go for it. Bit, go for it. Um, can't remember um, you jumping in on so, yeah. Jane's yeah, podcast. Yeah. Well. Oh, it was terrible. He had it, he had it coming. He had it coming. Um, there was talk about putting overhead sprinklers there for yeah, the population. Yeah, I think that, yeah, they there have. was a bit of fun. They have? A bit of funding available for that. Um, I think, yeah, and there was a bit of concern because uh, they were worried about, it was Elm Rust, I think, um, 
or having moisture in the trees. But um, eventually, I think they put it up. But I think there's there's been a couple of couple of issues. Um, uh, yeah, I don't really know a lot about you know how it's how it's going. But I think because I've got standing water and and there's really tall pipes that they have yeah. to drain out. If you leave it in there, it kind of gets well, it makes noise when it goes up. But if you leave it in there, you, I guess you can get um, fungal growth or whatever so i'm not yeah i'm not i haven't caught up with those guys um about that mm. last, year last time so. i went down there yeah there was the big pipes going up to the mm. trees so. mm. yeah yeah okay mm. um it was interesting you said that the fruit bats evolved from some micro bat way back in the paleocene mm. um because i remember hearing decades ago people thought they were almost evolved convergently and that the fruit bats evolved from lemurs. Mm. Was, that, was that ever a thing? Did I dream that? No, you didn't dream it. That's <laughs> been, <laughs> no, it's, yeah, like, I think, um, I think for, for most, you know, most of, the, most of the time up until, was that 1990s, I think we thought there was a single origin. There was a guy, Jack Pettigrew in Queensland, who was a fat, amazing guy. He Reevaluate. I think he he noticed that the visual pathway from the eye to the brain was unique in flying foxes that were more like primates than it were like other bats. And so he proposed this diphyolytic, or two separate origins for these two groups of bats. And then then a whole lot of people published uh, genetic stuff and showed no, no, you know they come from a single ancestor. And then he reanalyzed all their data and. And challenged it because they had, you know, base, you know, base biases in their DNA and all that. But then subsequently, there's, you know, enormous amount of sequencing done, and, and so that the dual origin is, <clears throat> is uh, you know, it's been pretty refuted. And the interesting thing is that some of the mammalian trees, because it's interesting looking at the various changes of mammalian evolution and all the relationships, because for a long time bats, you know, I started off bats who I thought were close, more closely related to shrews than anything else, that, that lineage but now it's, you know, part of the horses and rhinos as they're one of their closest relatives, you know thank god wow. rhinos don't have wings and <laughs> so, imagine the size of those wings yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pegasus <laughs> wow what got you into bats, how come, how come you're into bats yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I was asking you guys earlier a bit about you know how you get started, and it's and it's often you know I, I don't know how how you get started. I, I remember at school, kind of at least no formal education, but interested in looking up rocks. And I used to sell skinks at school for thruppence and stuff like that, and catch zebra finches. And so it was part of that. So you were a poacher. Poacher. Yeah. <laughs> <That's what>, um, <laughs> I'm joking. But, yeah, and then at some at some stage. Um, we got involved with, um, you know, bushwalking and caving, and I became pretty, you know, I, I was consumed by caving, cave diving for many years. And, and then we went into a cave once, and there was a bat on the wall, and a guy said, oh, don't let it bite you, you'll get histoplasmosis. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's a disease, you know. Um, anyway, so I went back and looked it up. Uh, I was working at the weight as a technician at that stage, and... <clears throat> I looked it up and I said, oh, hex histoplasmosis is actually a fungal disease. You can only get it from... It grows in the guano, you know, the guano on the floor. And if you breathe in the spores, you know, you can get lung disease. Not, um, and people die, people who mine guano for fertiliser and, and for gunpowder, 
uh, who get huge challenges can easily die of it. So I thought, well, nobody's done any work on bantwing bat bats at Narraquita. I'll go and do, collect some samples and get a mycologist to look at see if we've got histo there. And um, uh, anyway, so uh, then I was actually running a uh, going on a diving trip to the Nullarbor, and then I went to the museum and asked the guy. And I'd learned a little bit about bats at this, not much. I went to the museum and asked the guy there, did anybody want any bats? I'm going to the Nullarbor, you know. And uh, he said, oh, we don't, but go out and see these guys out at Gillis Plains doing, they've just got a grant to look at the taxonomy of Australian bats. So I went out there and, and eventually they signed me up to go on a six-month field trip around Australia collecting tissues for bats. And, and then I did that. For the second year, did it was a three-year grant, so I did that for six months, and then another six months, and and then I went to Tassie for three months. So and then we published, and then they gave me a job, um, and we published uh, all this using genetic techniques, which became in vogue then. It was all not DNA, but protein electrophoresis, and we showed that all these bat species, like what well, some of the, these little forest bats I was telling you about before, which you know, right in the very beginning was thought to be one species in Australia and then some people did some, uh, looked at the morphology of them and said there was four species and then we did the genes and showed that there were 11, uh, nine species in Australia. And so, um, yeah, and a whole lot of bats, bat groups we did the genetics on and published those and showing that there were lots of different species. And, and um, yeah, so I got a job and, you know, and then I worked in that, genetics lab which is a wonderful thing because we worked I worked for other guys who were doing working on fish and bacteria I published stuff on I don't know um, bacteria and fungi and whatever it's really good but bats always kind of a passion and it's one of those things you kind of get a little bit of knowledge and then so after those field trips you know I learned a bit but I didn't know that much and I thought I'd write a little book on that's not really knowing that much and and just about a lot of the people that were old, a lot older and had expertise passed away and then I became the expert, not knowing much at all. So you look up stuff and you gradually accumulate some knowledge and then, you know. But one of the really neat things for me, one of the best things for me is being, as part of a group that sort of set up the Australasian Bat Society, <clears throat> which has now grown to, I think, 700 members. And there was, you know, there were a bunch of bat researchers back in, you know, in the early 80s and now there's bat research going on all over Australia and you know I feel really proud to be involved with that society because it was very inclusive we brought in everybody and you know all these fantastic students now and researchers doing really really nifty stuff you know um, this project we've just done at Narricourt had a PhD student we put pit tags inside 3,000 bats and we've got these big loop antennas inside the cave and when the bats fly through it records every bat so for four years we had you know 3,000 bats you know flying through we've got their daily movements and completely reshaped our our prior understanding of their seasonal cycles and how they all all work you know so this combination of new students and technologies and this overarching body you know which and the conferences are always great it's just just finished one now last this week um um, you know, I think, you know, bat research is really healthy in Australia. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, and I think you probably see it across a lot of the disciplines, I think. Then. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel, feel like the research side of it is really healthy, but still so much to learn, so much we don't know. And 
Um, yeah, and then this ever-pressing pre- thing of worrying about the future, you know, future of all of our animals, not only bats, but everything. You know, it's still kind of what drives you, I guess. Do they have any, any predators? Yeah, so... Um, so, yeah, there will be uh, predators for bats. So, you know, bats live in tree hollows, often live in low hollows. So, you know, you often see snakes and goannas um, pick them up occasionally. Uh, we talked uh, earlier before this interview about Graham Medlin, who's it's the most amazing guy, does all the owl pellet stuff. But and he found, finds bats in, the, in some of the owl pellets, but it's a pretty low proportion of all other parts of their diet, so we don't think they eat a lot. Of bats, um, so yeah. So I don't. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what predators would be in some of the caves and whatever. I mean, we see down at Narricourt the occasional uh, possum goes in there, but I think they're just picking up and rats probably just pick up dead, you know, animals that have fallen from the roof, sort of thing. So, bat say, yeah, get one. Get it back. <laughs> My mate so where that. can we buy them? Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael Alexander from Black Snake Productions has mm. been on the show. He was mm. here the other day. He he's a demonstrator like me, mm. and he's in Victoria. He came to see Steve at Gorge and bought a couple of fruit bats. And he said, if you get some baby ones and you raise them, you can use them for educational shows. Um, I don't know. Then, then, then me and my staff have to get needles, and then I have to have a, an animal that can fly in an aviary, and I just feel bad for it. But mm. what do you think? Yeah. What I, are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I used to have an aviary, which we used to keep. I keep micro bats because I was interested in seeing how they interacted and whatever. But I always take them to talks, you know, because, and I think I was talking to you earlier about little freetail bats, which um, you have long, narrow wings, and they normally have to climb up high to take off. So they're great. They're called scurrying bats. So you can just stick it on your shirt or run around your shirt <laughs> and not try and take off, you know. But it's absolutely, you know, in in the it was it's so much harder now to take you know wild caught bats along to talks to show people. Um, the authorities are really worried about diseases and all that sort of stuff, and it's big permit ridden role. But it's just a game changer. Nearly everybody I show, you know, people haven't seen bats close up, and you know, and you see them, and they're like your pig, you know, like your pygmy possum or your, you know, um, dunnarts. You know, they're just small and cute, you know, and they've got gorgeous faces. And you open the wings, and you see how finely delicate, you know, those wing membranes are, and the long, thin bones and whatever. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, the only way, you know, you pay change people's opinions really is for them to see the bats and and I guess that's what you do and what I try and do a lot of is go out and talk to groups and try and spread the word you know and I think when people see the pictures and whatever I think people are yeah by and large persuaded to like them and understand them but um but you know we who do we talk to we often talk to groups that are already interested in the environment you know so um 99.99% 99.99% of people probably won't even know what a bat is or, you know, it's difficult. They're also different too. Like you talked about the different structures in their face for the sound vibrates into their face. Like did mm. you say, was there a leaf t- leaf-nosed leaf bat? Yeah, there's leaf-nosed and yeah. horseshoe-nosed bats. And, yeah, yeah, and the ghost bat has a big you know, sort of uh, fleshy leaf on its face, yeah. Which is a carnivorous bat, by the way. Eats other bats and birds and whatever. 
I was yeah. fishing. Where was I fishing? Uh, Coffin Bay. Oh yeah. With a friend and went back to like put his boat away and everything. Saw some bats flying around, and he said, um, "Oh yeah, I've got some Hessian sacks." He just lays over in the things. He said they've all got bats in, mm. like almost like he's done it for the bats to go into. Um, mm. Which I've actually got a picture of the bats. So it's not very good for a podcast, but yeah. So that's a long-eared bat. Is it? Yeah, I fairly obvious when you see it's here, isn't it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that's a really common Pretty bat. Cool. Oh. And I, I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard of people with sheds and, and f- finding that species, you know, under Hessian bags or, you know, they throw their saddles over or yeah. something or other. I think John actually had the Hessian bags there for the bats because yeah. he, he seemed mm. to have a lot and he's kind of controlled them in an area of his shed. Yeah. And he just sort of went and, and I went, what are you doing? And he grabbed one and went, there it is. So I made hey, bat boxes on the strength of that. So I got PVC pipe, you know, six-inch PVC pipe about that, about, I don't know, two feet long or so, um, whatever that is, and 60 centimetres or so, and put a cap on the top and put uh, rolled up hessian and then just drilled some holes in the side and support the hessian on some fencing wire. And they worked really well. In fact, I put them up down in the forest down in southeast at Panola. I went back after three weeks, and uh, the very first, a longer bat was in there roosting in there after three weeks. Wow. How it finds these things, I don't. Wow, I don't yeah. know. They've got spatial memory. They must know every new thing that happens. You know, within there, they they must know the whole landscape really well. I went back three months later, and there was a fat anikinus in that box in that top of the push the hessian down. Probably ate the bat yeah, <laughs> and the poor little nest oh, yeah. up the top, but. But yeah, so you know, like James Smith's, as we were talking before, um, you know, and a lot of people now, and after the fires, there were rotary groups building nest boxes and bat boxes, and they seem to work reasonably well. So yeah, and people who are interested in having bats, you know, you can find easily designs for bat boxes, you know, and it's something you might think about putting on a few trees down here as part of your your walks and and just see if you get bats in there um, yeah yeah so i want i yeah. want james to come to mind because i've got two of his boxes up and nothing's ever used them so mm. I, i've got them in the wrong place i know they're facing the right way but there's something mm. i've done wrong and mm. i want to get a couple of bat boxes and then james can come in and mm. hopefully help it's, a, me. it's a difficult thing you know because <laughs> i think you know bat densities in in adelaide are probably fairly low um but you know, there's been some amazing studies on bat boxes. There's a group at Organ Pipes National Parks in Victoria put out like hundreds of boxes, and they've they've done done it very um, really well organised. So they've had you know the same uh, size boxes with the same entrance. Um, they put them on trees at the same height or in the same orientation and whatever. And essentially, what comes out of it is you know they'll have two boxes exactly the same. The bats go in this box and stay there, and none go in this for two mm. years. And then other boxes they'll go in there for three months, and then they move to another box, sort of thing. You know, it's pretty random, and it's a bit hard to know. And there's been a lot of work, been an enormous amount of work done on bat boxes to try to work out what features that uh, would be helpful for getting them. But I don't think we really know. You know, it just seems if you put up enough, some of them will be be taken up. And, mm. Yep. Giving, giving him the option. Yeah, I think James may have said something about something like that when he was on the show with the bat boxes. Okay, so are many of our bat species endangered or threatened? Yeah, so um, I'm not exactly sure what the, n- the number is now, um, but, you know, maybe about 10% uh, in threatened categories. Uh, some 
uh, like the southern bentling bats critically endangered and others uh, endangered and others vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, and there's a lot of attention paid uh, to those species, a lot of cool work going on. But I guess my great fear is that, um, you know, the cave bats are relatively easy to study. You know, so a lot of these things like ghost bats live in known caves or in mines, for example. Uh, and a lot of limestone caves we know where there are lots of bat colonies and they're kind of relatively easy to study but the forest bats are really difficult you know we've got no way of knowing so, so at Narricourt for example I've got a um, colleague of mine at Humbug Scrub who is an amazing maths bof boffin so we've just got some funding from Zoos Victoria to count the population which we do by recording the whole night fly out and fly into the cave and he's written this amazing software to count each bat that goes out and goes in so we you know we can get a really good idea on um uh you know how the population's trending and, and what their movements are etc but forest bats are really difficult to know we've got no real idea how their populations are tracking it's just such a difficult thing to do you might be able to do it in a small area but some of these bats have large distributions like chocolate wattle bat i mentioned before and the long-eared bat we talked about it, that mm. was in the Hessian bag, you know, they're pretty much all over Australia. But we don't, you know, their population could have halved in the last 50 years and we would have no idea. Uh, that this. Um, so I guess even though we do know that there's a number of bats that are threatened and people are working on those and trying to... And it's very difficult because, you know, for example, the southern bentwing bat, which has a distribution essentially from Robe in South Australia over to, um, let's say, west of, a little bit west of Geelong. And it's, we know that it's got a couple of key maternity caves and a bunch of wintering caves where they disperse. So we can, we can study that bat <clears throat> really well, but even, even though we can study it, and it's probably one of the most studied bats, and we, and we now know, start to know something about its diet, it's now starting to understand its seasonal movements and its dependence on caves and all that, but what do we do with all this information? This is an area that's <clears throat> probably had 90% of its native vegetation cleared. You know, uh, it, you know, how do we provide for that bat? And there's 13 other microbat species that live down in the southeast as well. So how do we actually do anything about it? Um, and the way we're approaching it is, like I said before, you know, we look at try and look at the diet throughout the year. We've only looked at the diet on one night, so we want to do that throughout the year and work out what food it's eating and and therefore try and plant things and establish habitats that will provide that food but we just don't know anything about all the forest bats we have no idea you know how they're tracking and <clears throat> we know in certain areas you know large amounts of our huge trees have disappeared the recent fires have taken out big old hollow trees on our place at Cuddly Creek and so yeah I think some bats we know are endangered and I think there are a lot more that probably are maybe not threatened but really might be struggling and we would never know it mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay final question do you have a favourite bat <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a common question it's a cricket really, bat yeah, I kind of really like them all but it's a bit hard to go past a ghost bat you know, it's, I think it's one of five species in that family and it's the biggest uh, along with that um, naked bat in Borneo is the biggest of the micro bats and you know this bat could quite easily chomp through your fingernail you know it's got massive teeth massive jaws 
you know, I've caught them before and they're just really placid and intelligent looking animals and just, yeah, really unique. That, yeah, I think probably my favourite. Are they called ghost bats because of the colour? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and they're very quiet, you know. Oh, okay. You watch them fly out of a mine, you just can hardly hear them, yeah. Have you ever had anything to do with vampire bats? I said that was the last question that I lied, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, you have? Mm-hmm. Really? Because there's like three species, isn't there, of vampire That's correct. bats? Yeah. yeah, so the common vampire bat is the one that people worry about most, I, I suspect, because they, you know, feed, you know, on horses and seals and, you know, if you see if you're going to swag and got your toe out the end, you know, they can feed on you feed on humans and because they have to drink blood every night don't they uh you probably know more than i do i think they have to they have to drink regularly and um yeah and they they can eat almost their body weight and and they when they take off they just sort of launch like a harrier jet to get into the air and like dracula Mm. yeah like dracula yeah but one's a a bird specialist on birds bird blood and uh, i was reading a story or listening to a biologist talk about this he was is explaining how he was watching this bird about the size of a chicken asleep at night on a branch, and all these little, tiny little vampire bats came in, you know, nicked a, a vessel, a blood vessel on the toe. And over the course of an hour or so, he watched this, these bats come in and lap up the blood, and, the, and apparently the bird just fell off the branch in shock. Oh, my God. just lost that much blood. So. How rude. Mm. Um, so I've, got, <laughs> I've got one other thing to say. Yeah. Hammerhead bat. Ah, oh, yeah, well, now we're talking. Different league. Yeah, different league of bats. Hit, What's this happen? I think monstrosus. I was, was yeah. going to say that. Monstrosus definitely. No, uh, Pretty weird looking bat. It's, it's the, like a horse head. I'm just trying. Oh, to find I have Adrian. seen that. I've it's seen pictures. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it looks like a gargoyle. Oh, that's and that's just f- so many. That's a fruit bat, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think bat? it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but I was thinking, just as you think, look up. Um, the lacewing bat, or Centurio senex. This is a bat that's got the oh, face look it's like it's hit a car window at 120 <laughs> kilometres What's it called? Uh, lacewing uh, bat? Lacewing... How'd you spell bat? <laughs> <laughs> it's like bad, but you spelled the D for a T. Swing. <laughs> I can give you this. Come up with lacewing things. No, it's probably it? better to write in Centurio. That's, and it has this kind of weird, it's ugly, no doubt the ugliest bat in the universe. It's just got this <laughs> horrible skin on its face and these flaps that... So we've gone from our favourite bat to our oh least favourite bat. Oh, my good lord. Chocolate waddle bat. Yeah, it's got these beautiful wings. Oh, it does look ah. like it's flying into the back of a bus. Bat, yeah, bat. and apparently it closes sure those... It didn't? <laughs> apparently somebody told me that those they those flaps on the see. on the bubbit's brow fold down and match up with its chin i think it's to hide its face in shame uh, oh, i would but, think so look at that wow That's, but it's got beautiful wings you know, look at it go these beautiful lace wings it doesn't so. matter you're never going to see the wings past that face are you mm. and did you say just and i'm going to go right back to the beginning now and i did say this is the last question you said they um <laughs> separate their ossicles from their eardrum so that they don't yeah, so only hear their echo yeah. and the call they, they're sending out like this back and forward it, oh so, so yeah weird. so it's very fast muscle movement like i think it's 200 a second or something or other they can do this that's just so crazy just, just decouple yeah the, so they can hear that is, above so their that is so bizarre um wow thank you so much for coming on terry no um, and, awesome yeah. yes thank you i'm gonna thank joan again too 
last week's episode. Yay, so, thank you. <laughs> last <laughs> week's episode. Like we bring one out every week. Yeah, I was going to um, say, don't get people's hopes up to weekly. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you for having us. Oh, that you was a pleasure. Welcome. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you thank for you. all your knowledge. That was amazing. That was amazing. And thank you for all you do. Mm. Yeah. Oh. And uh, to you guys. Likewise. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. And guys, thank you for listening. <laughs>